Dr. Jennifer Kasten is a practicing pediatric pathologist with degrees in medicine from the Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, infectious disease epidemiology from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, a year's postgraduate work in the mathematical modeling of infectious disease at Oxford, and master's in the history of medicine and science also from Oxford. That's a lot of school. She's only had a Facebook page since March, but she's already become a phenomenon, with many of her posts going viral, and if you don't follow her, you should. Her understanding of pathology, lab testing, virology, and mathematical modeling make her uniquely suited to understand so many facets of this pandemic. So I crowdsourced some questions from the COVID-19 physician group, and she was kind enough to sit down with me for over an hour and a half answering these questions. In the first half, we discussed the epidemiology. We try to explain why some locations are hotspots, are not, or how many people one person typically infects, droplet versus aerosol, why you don't need a hazmat suit for the grocery store, the true mortality rate, and current testing. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. Those on this podcast accept no liability for the outcomes of medical decisions based on this information. As the radiologists like to say, clinical correlation is required. This is not medical advice, and this does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. If you have a medical problem, seek medical attention. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Shopping for disability insurance can be complicated and time-consuming. Wondering if you're getting the best prices and discounts while in training can make the process even more overwhelming. Pattern believes doctors have more important things to do than spending hours sorting through numerous insurance options. This is why thousands of doctors trust Pattern to help them compare and understand the insurances that they are buying. They do this in three simple steps. First, request your quotes online. Second, compare your options and ask questions. And third, apply risk-free. Be confident you have the right policy so that your income is protected. With discounts for doctors and training and some relaxed requirements during the pandemic, now is truly the best time to request your disability insurance quotes with Pattern at PatternLife.com slash partner slash PGD. Again, that's PatternLife.com slash partner slash PGD for Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Dr. Jennifer Kasten, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Brad, thank you so much for having me. Let's first talk about the vast differences in experiences in different countries and even within the United States. How would you go about explaining the fact that, you know, a place where I am, New York, is having so many cases, whereas West Virginia, not many cases? Well, I would say this. If you had to make a prediction about a city in the United States that, A, has a lot of global links all over the world, but especially to China and to Europe, B, lives with a great amount of human and physical density. And C, has a lot of mixing. Which would you choose? Yeah. Oh, yeah, New York, right? Yeah. So I think New York would be anybody's prediction of our, our own native hotspot. Some of the other places in the United States that saw hotspots were a little bit of a surprise. I don't think anyone would have picked Detroit or New Orleans. And I think most people would have put money on San Francisco. So some of this is a little bit expected, like I said, about where cases would have been, quote, seeded from, coming from overseas, the initial importation events, of which there were hundreds of separate importation events. And some of them are just random. Some of it's stochastic. 
clusters take off or clusters die out. I think a lot of the times when people are thinking about epidemiology and they're now very familiar with that concept of R naught, the number of cases that a single infective case makes, they sometimes think of it as like a, a mathematical law, like it's a bacterial doubling time or something that necessarily happens, that the R naught is 2.2, so every case makes 2.2 cases. Well, that's not true. That's not true, right? Go yeah, ahead. The minute you hear a case that spread, like one person spread to 15 different people, suddenly, okay, now that R naught is no longer R naught, and it doesn't make any sense, but it's right. the average. It, no, yeah. it's a population average. Exactly right. So some clusters die out and some clusters take off. So yes, there's, there's reasons why we have urban epidemics as opposed to rural epidemics. And again, some of it is stochastic. There's that small town in Georgia, Albany, Georgia, which is a, is a small town, but had an unduly high burden of cases. We obviously see cases in small rural places where there are people who live in very close proximity to each other, the meatpacking uh, plants, the jails, uh, those kinds of facilities. But I think heterogeneity is, is, the, is the rule and not the exception. And, and that applies in, say, the European spread as well. Like the fact oh. that it went from China to Italy. Like my, my wife is actually from Switzerland. So one thing that they do there is they kiss three times, which when you're at a family gathering is extremely time consuming. So it doesn't really make that much sense to me. But, you know, I'm in, I'm in New York, so everything's, you know, super fast. Um, so is, is that maybe one of the reasons why in Italy it took off so quickly? Because they're just so social and maybe a little more touchy than other cultures? Yeah, much, well, much, much ink has been spilled. Like, why, why Northern Italy? Why the Northern Italian Alps and not the Swiss Alps, for example? Yeah, the other so, side of the mountains. Yeah. Could have been, could have been, yeah, and, and it so, just could have easily been one as opposed to the other. Right, precisely. Okay. I think sometimes we search for meaning where there just isn't meaning. The, the virus probably has a preferred climate niche. And if you look at the early epicenters, they all fit in that niche, right? Like Central China, Northern Iran, Northern Italy, the UK and, and the parts of the US that have been hardest hit, you know, the New York area, Seattle first, but not California. So, so perhaps there's a climactic reason underlying a lot of this. But, yeah, but we live as, inside. I, say again? But we live inside. Like we, we spend so much time. I would think it spreads more indoors than outdoors, and in which case then the climactic uh, change or, or consistency wouldn't really matter. Like most of us live at 72 degrees Fahrenheit. That, that, is, that is a phenomenal point. And yes, that's true. Um, in fact, when people actually started parsing out precisely where transmission was occurring, like actually mapping clusters and pinning down a geotag on where the transmission event occurred. And they did this in Wuhan very nicely. There was something like 312, 318, I forget the exact number of clusters they mapped. And only one actually occurred outside and that was at the, the vestibule of the hospital when people were packed in really densely. So that's a reasonable. So yeah, you're right. So, that, so that, that's something that sort of argues against the climactic theory. But to whatever degree the virus likes to hang out in the environment, whatever its preferred temperature and humidity conditions might or might not be, you know, there, there might be some reason underlying that. But again, I just tell people, don't, don't kill yourselves searching for a meaning and an ultimate reason where there just might not be one. Yeah, we might not be able to explain it. It doesn't mean it's not true. Right. That's, I think that's all of science. Right. <laughs> that's why we have to keep. Yeah. Or it's just random. Asking. It's just, hey, this person went to the market and shook hands with this person and bought a fish and then slapped a guy and that guy got the coronavirus. 
you know? So you, you mentioned are not. Let's, yeah. let's talk about that number, that how we arrived at that 2.2 number, where every, if you get it, you're likely to, or the average number that get it from that patient zero, I guess, is uh, 2.2 new people. How, how did you get that number? Well, I, I will pretend that I made it up. <laughs> how, did, how did you get it? <laughs> I pulled it out of a hat where I pulled out all of my numbers. <laughs> it's very, it's a, yeah. So that was first worked out in the Chinese epidemic, and then it seemed to hold up pretty nicely in the Korean epidemic. The problem, of course, when you're trying to work these numbers out is you have to take the cases as they're reported somewhat as a given, right? You can assume that there's some degree of what's called underascertainment, which is cases that are undiagnosed. And it's an epidemiological principle that at the very earliest stages of an epidemic, there, number one, will be massive underascertainment, and number two, there will be a very strong severity bias because only the severest, sickest, most fatal cases are going to come to attention. That's how you notice them. That's how you say, hang on, something's happening here. This is a new disease. And then you work backwards in time and you start case searching and you try to flesh everything out. To calculate the R0, though, like I said, you have to sort of say the numbers are real. The cases as they're reported are more or less accurate and reflective of reality. So it is possible if, if, for example, these large serosurvey studies that are in progress now um, doing population-wide antibody testing, if those come back with massive, massively elevated prevalence, then R0 is going to have to be recalculated and upwardly revised. But right now, modeling off of the cases as they've been reported, correcting for some degree of underascertainment, yes, around 2.2, maybe 2.5. That's where most people have landed. Well, but didn't Korea have massive population-wide testing, and so you would think it would be pretty reliable. Korea tested much more widely, and I'm talking about the earliest stages of the epidemic now. I'm not talking about May, but I'm, but I'm talking about January, February. They tested much more widely than anywhere else in the world at the time, which is why their data was considered to be the most reliable, but it certainly wasn't population level. What they Got did it. was just a lot of aggressive contact tracing, and then they tested a lot of asymptomatic contacts of known cases. I just assumed because they did it better than we did that they did everything, <laughs> including that, much better than. And it, that seems, yeah, it seems to seems to hold water. It does. You you did a post recently about using that R not to identify what number we need to get to in terms of herd immunity. So how do you get? I'm going to ask you to rehash a little from that post. How do you get from that R0 number of 2.2? And actually, before we get to that, sorry, I'm just okay. going to leave leave the listeners leave you know, wanting hanging. a little more, leave them yeah. hanging a little bit. This is like the Radio three technique. dots, the three yeah. dots when you're texting. <laughs> They're you just, just waiting. Wait. Just wait. Would R0 be different in a place like Manhattan, right? Where everybody's living on top of each other and everybody's using the same subway and every so if someone on a subway car is going to spread it to you know not a quick ride but a long ride right from the Bronx to southern Manhattan and they, so they spread it to a bunch of people just the the very nature of the living situation less so the virus itself wouldn't that change or not so it's different in different it does areas. So, so one of the more dynamic ways that are not is calculated there's a coefficient that's put smack in the front smack in the front, and that's beta or B. And that is the number of contacts an infected case comes, comes into contact with. So you can, you can have the most infectious virus known to man. Let's pick measles, which has an R naught of 18. 
if you have measles, but you're in a hermetically sealed bubble, you're not, you're are not a zero because yeah. you're not coming in contact with anybody. Right. That's why social distancing dynamically affects R naught. When I, when, when, now when epidemiologists mostly talk about R naught, they're talking about it in the wild, in a state of nature. They're not talking about it being dynamically adjusted upwards or downwards by how much we're, we're effectively distancing and coming to contact with each other. Got it. Right. But yeah, some places are massively more socially distant just by nature than others. There are parts of the world where if you kissed three times on the cheek, like in Switzerland, that would be grounds for a lawsuit, right? <laughs> yeah. And there's parts of the world where, you know, the, like outer you Mongolia. Cut something where, off. Right. Outer Mongolia, where there's less than two people per square mile. Yeah. It's, it's pretty difficult to transmit COVID. And right? now you'll be able to identify based on the r not of a certain area uh, what news network they watch. Is that true? No, I don't know. I just made that up. But I would, but I would assume that. Well, it sounded you know, really convincing. Depending, depending on what ch- what channel you're watching, you might believe that social distancing is overdoing it, and you don't need to wear a mask, and this is all overblown. And you watch a different network, and you're going to have to hide out in your bunker and wait for the vaccine because you're never coming out again. So I think that, like, right, there's going to be that dynamic as well. Different communities following social distancing versus showing up. Uh, dressed for a guerrilla war in front of their state house. Fair enough. I think people do exist in different information climates right now. That's not controversial. So let's uh, switch. Oh, actually, we were going to talk about the R not for uh, for herd immunity. So yes, so, we were. So yes. So the quick and dirty way, and I say this: epidemiologists very rarely like things quick and dirty. But the quick and dirty way to calculate R not is very simple. You take one, and then you subtract one over R not. So if your R-naught is two, right? One minus one half is Brad. No, I can't. I'm you sorry. You can. Do it. Come on. The MCAT wasn't that far back. One I'm going to have to edit this part out. I rarely edit anything out, but I'm going to have to edit this One so, half. It's one half. One half. Yeah. Okay. So it's 50%. So if your R-naught is two, then your herd immunity threshold is roughly 50%. Okay. Right? So the higher the R-naught... Of course, that means the more cases your case is generating, the more infectious your virus. Therefore, the more people need to be immune before transmission damps down entirely. Measles, again, has an R-naught of between 16 and 18. So that's why our herd immunity threshold for MMR is 95%. Which is why when a couple of people in a community don't get it, there is, you know, that's why we are seeing a resurgence of measles, whereas we weren't seeing a resurgence of other things that we vaccinate for in the same community because the R naught is so high for. So, yeah, so, yeah. so obviously it makes intuitive sense, I think, to anybody that the herd immunity threshold is going to be higher for very highly transmissible infectious viruses. But right. I was under the impression that this was highly transmissible and highly infectious just because of the explosion that we saw. Yeah, and well, and R naught is we're two, so far good, from herd immunity. Yeah, I mean, two point two—that's that more than doubles each generation, each yeah. infective generation. That's pretty good. And that's moving along in a fast clip, and this is in a population which, at the time, most of us think is pretty much immunologically naive. Yes. Now, there has been some promising evidence very recently that there might be actually some degree of cross protectivity, um, cross reactivity in the protective sense from other coronaviruses. So that's, that's great if that's true. But let's say we were all immunologically naive. So sure, it's going to move through us like kindling, right? The good news, though, is 
this post that you might have been alluding to was some modeling work that was done from a big international multi-institutional group, mostly in the UK, but also in Europe and South America uh, and the US and NIH. And so they, they basically said, you know, hang on, it's really ridiculous to assume every single person in the population is equally susceptible to COVID. You know, Chuck Norris <laughs> is not as susceptible to COVID as, you know, your elderly grandmother, right? Yes. He's Chuck Although Norris. Although I think he's, I think he's elderly at this point. It doesn't matter. I'm pretty, but he's still Chuck still Norris. Chuck Norris. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Right. So yeah. some- Do you have some, a favorite Chuck Norris joke? Um, no. Sorry, I caught you. Caught you. Caught me off guard. Off, totally off guard with that. Mine, mine happens to be, Chuck Norris's tears cure cancer. It's a shame he never cries. <laughs> That's a very good one. I like that. <laughs> but actually, as a, as a pathologist, I'm so glad he doesn't, because then I'd be out of a job. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's a little dark. <laughs> no. Well, we're dark people. Yes. Obviously. So okay. Uh, so back to Chuck Norris getting it versus the elderly yeah. grandmother. So, it's, so, so and, and it's said, interesting that you say that because my personal experience as an ENT, having three small children who bring everything home, you know, I've been through the medical system. I'm now nine years out of residency. And so I see, and an and ENT in New York might be a little different. We see a lot of acute stuff. So, you know, I see sick people. I see a lot of kids. Whenever one of my kids brings something home, my wife inevitably, get, inevitably gets it. I rarely do. So I rarely get sick. And my thought is because I've had it all already between medical school and residency and now as an attending, like I've just been exposed and been sick so many times that there's got to be some cross reactivity, but that's just my N of one, not good science, right? So what's your, what's, what's your thought that there's some cross reactivity out there? Well, the N of two would be, I also have reproduced successfully and have three small children and have uh, undergone the same phenomenon. But, you know, that is a theory about why the uh, warm weather and less developed parts of the world might have been somewhat protected. Why their epidemics have been as muted as they have been is that potentially people in less developed countries who have been exposed to a great number of pathogens might have some protective effect. It's a theory. Yeah. And like I said, there was a paper that just came out a few days ago that showed some cross-reactivity. There's really nice work that's being done with neutralizing antibodies that shows neutralizing antibodies can basically neutralize both SARS-CoV-1 and SARS-CoV-2. So there, there's some degree of, of assumed cross-protectivity uh, in modeling the epidemics in the United States. Like Mark Lipsitch out of Harvard has modeled in some cross-protectivity from the even the alpha coronaviruses, the common cold coronaviruses. So it's it's slightly more than just theoretical and it's slightly more than just an N of one. Um, so is that- thing is, but you know, we can't, so the, so the beta coronaviruses are SARS and MERS. And there's basically a few thousand humans on the planet right now who've been exposed to either SARS or MERS. Right. So maybe they're protected and that's fabulous for them. But, you know, out of the 7.7 billion of the rest of us, it won't help much. But if the alpha coronaviruses did have some protective effect, you know, over 90 percent of adults have been exposed to alpha coronaviruses. That would be pretty rad, I think. Back to the point, though, about we're not all equally susceptible. So this modeling group, this multi-institutional modeling group said, you know, that just seems pretty obvious. And that's definitely observed in basically every other infectious disease. So it should probably be true for this one. And they did some really lovely work where they put in various coefficients of variability, starting from 
one, meaning no variability, meaning we're all homogenous, we're all equally susceptible, all the way up to three and four, which is pretty considerable variability. And they showed that the fraction of the population which needs to be immune, which is also called the herd immunity threshold, the HIT, the HIT, I'm going to call it the HIT. So the HIT drops dramatically once you start to assume some of this variability. And again, this isn't just like people in their armchairs wishing for a better world. This is modeled off of other infectious diseases, including SARS-1. And it's all the way down to 20% with a coefficient of variability of three, which is pretty rad because the New York City area, assuming that one SEER survey data point is pretty reflective of reality, is there. Is there. And I mean, look at New York's curve, right? Can anybody explain New York's curve by any other means? Social distancing is great, but it only in America drops R naught between 35 and 40%. New York didn't institute a stay at home order until March the 22nd, and the epidemic peaked about two weeks after that. But um, isn't that, you know, the incubation period? So wouldn't that fit? Yeah, it fits a little bit. But again, if you're only if you're only reducing R not by stay-at-home measures by 35 to 40%, you know, it doesn't explain the entire shape of the curve. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's both and. That's what I tell people. You know, there's a lot of people out there that want to make this into a very polarized sort of dichotomous issue. It's either all social distancing, all lockdown, or on the other side, you have people that say it's just the virus. It's basically the flu. It's you know, it's already ripping through the entire population, et cetera. Yeah. It's both and. It's the, it's the natural transmission dynamics of the disease, including the herd immunity threshold, the hit. And we have averted a lot of death and suffering and sped things up in terms of recovery by keeping people apart. You know, it would be nice if we could hear that in a political debate. If someone would be asked a question and just be answered, the answer would start with, well, let's just start with the fact that this is inordinately complicated. <laughs> like you have so many factors that play into something like this. Like we're not even getting into immigration, but something like immigration, like so inordinately complicated that like we can't really distill it into sound bites because if you do that, you lose everything about how ultimately complex it is that, you know, even with hours to explain it, I wouldn't be able to adequately get there. Like that, I think that's, yeah. like, that's what you're saying. Like this is so, so complicated. That it's so complicated. That's why you're talking to somebody who writes 1,500 word posts instead of 180 <laughs> characters. Because you can distill it down and add a little bit of satire to it, which really, really is what makes it. So thank you. I think it was your time in uh, in London that really comes out in your sense of humor. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> So you were talking about the fact that this really has to obey the laws that other viruses do, right? Like, this is not so vastly different from any other virus that we've seen. And so this is why it has to behave in a certain way. That's why it probably has some cross-reactivity. This is why it has an r naught that's this number. This is why social distancing is going to work. Yeah, and, it's, and it's biology. You know, the way it infects people, the way, the way the, our pathologic response, our immunologic response, all of it. It, it follows laws. And so it, there's, there's another law that I was wondering about and certainly is near and dear to my heart as an ear, nose, and throat doctor that gets sneezed and coughed on a lot while I'm up in people's face. And that is a droplet, droplet versus airborne. And, and the answer might be it's more complicated and it's not A or B, um, but can we discuss that a little bit? First, it would be nice to define just what droplet means versus airborne yes. and, and discuss which one 
Yes. So, so airborne, we have to be very careful when we use that word because there is a colloquial sense, which means, is it carried around in the air? Which it is, right? Yes. Versus aerosol transmission, right? So that's the technical sense versus the everyday colloquial sense. Yes. It doesn't just come out of your nose and drop like a lead weight. Precisely. Yeah. And then stick to the floor. Although I guess it does stick to the floor because it's in mucus. Eventually but, but, when yeah. it falls down. Yeah. Yes. So the, the important difference is the size of the particle. And that is basically, the virus is the virus, right? It's small. But it gets wrapped in a protective moisture coat. And it is so happy inside its protective moisture coat. That's what keeps it alive. And that's what keeps it intact. And it can float around in the world and potentially come into your nose when your patient sneezes on you and replicate and live its happy viral life. Aerosols are much smaller and the protective moisture coat is infinitely smaller. So in order for any pathogen to be transmitted via an aerosol, it has to be hardy enough to withstand entirely drying out. So yes, aerosols are smaller and they're lighter and they float. They don't sink to the floor. They can drift longer distances and they can do things which frighten people like get into air conditioning systems and get sucked into another floor and whatnot. Uh, a, a droplet virus can't do that. The droplet particles are too heavy and too big and they fall and they can't go that far. Okay, thank goodness. <laughs> um, okay, so, and, and that can linger in the air. Do you have a number offhand for how long if someone coughs in an elevator and you get into that elevator an hour later, half an hour later, 20 minutes later? Well, if, it, if it's truly aerosolized and it can withstand drying out, yeah, those are big ifs. Then yeah, yeah. an hour later is fine. Yeah, and the fact the again, the fact that our R naught is two and not twenty, I think probably speaks against it being aerosolized. But some people are probably listening to me right now, and they're screaming at their at the, whatever they're listening to this podcast on. You moron! In their cars, and they're probably their cars, mostly. They're banging moron. their head on the steering wheel. You they were moron. screaming anyway. Actually, what there's about, no traffic. What about the Seattle choir incident? And what about that restaurant in China where they said it got in the air conditioning system? I say. I, I'm aware of those things. And more importantly, people it's who It's complicated. It's complicated. And more importantly than me being aware of these things, people who are actual aerobiologists and, and aerovirologists are aware of them. And the, That's the, a thing? There's an aerovirologist? thing. Yes, I can, it's a thing. So I can say there has not been convincing proof that this virus can be transmitted via aerosols. That doesn't mean it can't happen. It doesn't mean it's been conclusively disproven, but neither of those two incidents is enough to really prove it. It's, it's worrisome. But the Seattle choir incident, for example, a choir is actually a very odd and artificial scenario because you have a lot of people and in, in this choir, many of them are a bit older, who are standing artificially close together for two hours at a time performing an activity which generates a huge amount of aerosols and droplets. Singing puts, uh, you're an ENT, you know all about this, but singing puts quite a, quite a bit more stress in uh, your thoracic cage and your vocal cords and generates higher pressures and all of this than does speaking. So it makes more particles. So it's, it was like a very artificial and high-risk scenario. And then everyone who's singing with you is taking deep breaths. Precisely. They're inhaling, so they're creating vacuums. Yeah, quite close together. So, like I said, the virus isn't that hardy, and it can't withstand drying out. But it could probably withstand floating in a little aerosol particle two feet to the next person. And the other thing, always, people have to remember always is that one virus is not enough, right? 
there's always the concept of an infectious dose. And we're not entirely sure yet what the infectious dose is. And I always say, unless you want to volunteer for an experiment <laughs> where people shove increasingly high doses of virus up your seven, nose. Eight, seven, eight, nine, yeah. 27. 42 is the answer to everything. So probably 42. But actually it's about a thousand. So it's, and then that's been modeled from MERS. MERS, it was around 10,000, and this is considered to be more infectious than that. So it's, it's high hundreds or low thousands. So you have to get not just one virus, but you have to get about 1,000 of them into your nose or your, your mouth at the right time, uh, all at the same time, to get an infection going. So again, a choir practice with lots of older people packed in together, it might be just about the only environment where aerosol transmission could occur. Yeah. Do people generate aerosols when they're infected with COVID? Of course, absolutely. We generate aerosols all the time just by speaking and breathing. So of course they do. Do those aerosols contain virus? Of course it does. Can that virus live in the environment at all? Can it withstand drying out without being denatured? And more to the point, can a thousand of them do that all at the same time to infect the next person? That's the question. And that has not been... 42. The answer is 42. 42. The answer is 42. <laughs> that has not been conclusively demonstrated. So we ho- And we hope that's true. And then other people are probably still screaming at this, whatever their podcast is being played on, saying, what about detecting virus and all these environmental services days and days after someone was around? Again, you have to remember, that wasn't necessarily detecting infectious virus. In fact, it certainly wasn't detecting infectious virus. It was detecting viral RNA. Because... Oh. Yeah, because he went along, scraped off all these surfaces and PCR'd it and said, voila, I found some viral copies. Well, that's what you found. You found viral RNA. You did not find infectious virus. And there were some much better experiments in Germany where not only were they recovering virus from the environment, but they tried to inoculate it into Petri dishes full of cells in viral media, you know, the best possible conditions to culture a virus. And no infectious virus was recovered at all. It degenerated in the environment after something like 30 minutes to an hour, which is more in keeping with how we would think a respiratory virus would behave. So when people come into a patient room in a hospital and scrape the bedside table four days after someone was discharged and say, oh my God, we detected COVID RNA here, that's what you found. You found RNA. When they went to the cruise ships two, three weeks after people disembarked and discovered they they could recover the SARS-CoV-2 RNA, that's what they found. They found RNA. It didn't find infectious virus. So we had some questions uh, from from the physician group about protective equipment, knowing this about uh, droplet spread. You know, because we're in we're in different situations than say the public. And let me know which you'd feel more comfortable answering, if, if any of these, in terms of what protective regalia we should be wearing. And let's say we're in an outpatient situation seeing what are mostly non-COVID patients, but you know, there could be someone who's asymptomatic. Do you do you and we won't hold you liable if someone follows this and then gets you legal disclaimer, you know, this is a podcast meant for entertainment only. That's right. And I'm an academic pathologist. If you're looking for deep pockets, mm-mm. so you know, uh, what is your recommendation? And then a correlated to that is, you know, what should be, what, what are you doing personally so that what we should be, be telling our patients in terms of being outside and going to say the grocery store? Well, I, everyone needs to remember that this is a respiratory virus. So if you are worried about fomite spread or environmental spread, consider the respiratory route to be about a thousand times more important. That doesn't mean that the fomite route doesn't happen 
it just, it's so, so minor compared to the respiratory route. I think universal precautions, especially if you're in a high prevalence area, but anywhere, anywhere where you're seeing patients, as far as a respiratory virus is concerned, would, would involve masking for sure. And I don't think the ocular membranes route is that important. So a lot of people have asked me about face shields. And I, as if you're a, an ENT, like you are, if you're an op- ophthalmologist and some, you're very close to someone who might just sneeze right in your eyes, then sure. Yeah. But most of us are not going to be in that situation. Yeah, um, there is some cases. There was a case in China where they were, I think it might have been a transphenoidal uh, pituitary case where everyone who was in the operating room ended up getting, I think this is where in a situation you're using high powered drills. So a high powered drill, you know, is going to aerosolize yeah. it, but that yeah. is a very artificial environment. So yeah, in that situation, you need to be super careful, right? I would, in, in, in the same situation, if you're doing surgery with nasal polyps. Yeah, in- actually, and us as pathologists for some of the things we do in autopsy, it's actually about the highest risk. We are very invasive. Interesting. Yeah. And we so even though the patient is no longer with us, the virus yeah. the is. The virus is, yeah. Hmm. Farewell kiss, yeah. What is it called? It's not called a farewell kiss, but that's what it's called. <laughs> yeah, anyway. But so, so people ask about gloves and, you know, do you need to be in the full hazmat suit? I don't think so. Do you need to protect your nose and mouth? Yes. What about, like, do you do the grocery shopping for your house? I do. So what is your protocol when you go grocery shopping? My protocol is very simple. It's called a mask. Okay. Well, is it an N95 or it's just any regular? No, No, I mean, cloth masks are acceptable to the public, right? Yeah. When I don't, I don't mean because their lives are worth less. I mean, because they're not exposed to very large doses of virus with the potential for repeated inoculation like we are in the healthcare setting. No, but I mean, in of- terms of your hands, like, uh, you know, protecting yeah. your, you, I, well, no, I'm not, at least I'm, I'm not telling my patients to wear, I'm telling my patients not to wear gloves actually, because then it's yeah. harder to keep track of what they can touch and what, what they- they've touched and what they haven't touched. And yeah. I mean, you, like, I wipe down your groceries or anything? Absolutely yeah. not. Okay. And I, and I tell people all the time, just imagine if you think that seems crazy, I'll I'll give a caveat first. The caveat is that people have different degrees of tolerance for risk and have a different, and for some people, the idea of being able to control one thing about this pandemic is extremely comforting to them. And if that's you, you do you, boo, that's fine. (laughs) Because the risk is not zero. It is very, 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 very small, but it is not zero. Yeah. If you Some people drive it, faster than others. If you want, exactly. If you want to make it as small as possible, then keep you keep doing that. Mm-hmm. But just imagine the sequence of events that has to occur for you to get COVID from a cereal box, right? All right, so Brad, you go to the grocery store and you sneeze, the wettest, most disgusting sneeze on the cereal box, Tricks. right? It's going to be tricks. tricks. It would be tricks. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's what I would sneeze on. I wouldn't buy it, but I would sneeze on Yeah, because on. you have a special hatred for tricks. Oh, trick. Yeah. They are for kids, so you aren't allowed to buy it anyway. But and then, and then I come along, like immediately afterwards, it would have to be less than an hour. I come along and I don't even notice that it's all wet. And I pick it up. Okay. I can do one of two things. The first thing that I would do, which would be probably the more likely thing, would be I pick it up and I put it into my cart, right? So then I might have transferred a very small amount of virus, whatever's still alive and intact and hanging out on the cereal box, onto my hands. Can the virus burrow in through your skin? No, no. no. You're asking Good. me no. The answer is no. Yes, Definitely well done. No. It cannot. It cannot. 
right? So then I, then I like run my fingers through my hair because I'm pretending I'm Fabio or I'm in like a shampoo commercial. And so it's closer to my mouth and nose, but is it in my mouth and nose? No. And I've, I've already rubbed some of it off. Everything I've touched, I touch the grocery cart. I touch the remaining groceries that I buy. Whatever I touch, I've already, I'm diminishing the amount of virus that's on my hands. And then maybe eventually I rub, like wipe my nose, right? But remember, even if, even if a few tiny viral particles are hanging out still uh, intact and infectious, you have to have a thousand of them to get into your nose at the same time in order for transmission to be established, right? I mean, that's just so unlikely. And that is if you made the world's most massive wet sneeze on the box immediately before I picked it up. Now, what I could do, which I think would be very unlikely, is let's say I was so beguiled by the fruits on the tricks box that I just needed to smell them. So I pick up the cereal box and I take a huge, deep, admiring sniff of the box right after you sneezed on it. Well, in that scenario, yes, potentially, you could become infected. But I think a lot of people are going to stop smelling the fruit that they buy now to, to, sell, to tell if it's, if it's ready hearing that. Right? right? Isn't that one thing you're supposed to do? I'm so bad at picking out fruit. I'm not allowed to do it. I don't know if you're supposed to smell it. I think you're supposed to like inspect tap it. it. That's what they tap do it. in all the commercials. Yeah. And, um, you know, tap it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> tap it. So before we move on to testing, because I definitely want to get to antibody testing, a little more about the epidemiology. Now that we have more information about the big denominator, right? Yes. What are we at in terms of the fatality rate of this disease, right? Because initially we thought it was super high, but that was the selection bias because right. we were only testing the super sick. Absolutely. We, we, had, we had no idea of how many either minimally low symptomatic or asymptomatic people were out there. Right. Exactly. So now that we have more information, what is that adjusted fatality rate? Well, no, one's, no one knows for sure. It's complicated. It's complicated, but it looks like so we have to be clear that there's the infection fatality rate, which is what is the true fatality rate. That's uh, uh, the percentage of everybody who actually gets infected with the virus, how many people die. And then there's the case fatality rate. So those are the people that actually come to attention, get tested PCR-wise, and are a clinically defined case. So at the beginning, all we had was the case fatality rate, the CFR. And the serology data is fleshing out the IFR. We know what the floor is, meaning the lower limit of the IFR. That's been worked out pretty nicely and probably can't be any lower than 0.3%. Okay. So that comes from Italy mostly, where they've worked it out pretty well, both in terms of the absolute fraction of the population period who died in the spring, this spring, yeah. as well as some nice zero survey data that they did. The ceiling, of course, is of great interest. How far, is it around 1% or is it north of 1%? We're not sure. But it's been, you know, again, this is not, I don't want people to feel like there's something conspiratorial here. This is an epidemiological principle that the CFR at the beginning of an epidemic is always overestimated, always. And that is because, again, only the sickest people come to attention and it's only once you start seeing a lot of really sick people with similar symptoms that you can put it all together and say, hang on, this is something's happening. Something's yeah. happening, right? You don't get that from a bunch of people sneezing at home, right? Yeah. No. Nobody's yeah, there's a there's a cold going around. This is a new cold. This is a new it's cold. It's different. My it's, nose, it feels different than it did for the last cold. There's definitely something new. Yeah. Precisely right. 
So you got it. So again, people are people feel like they've been somewhat duped or lied to. Not at all. This is a known principle. Now, of course, there could be more transparency around that, I think, saying that this is probably going to be downwardly adjusted, et cetera, et cetera. But that, uh, whether or not that messaging was sent out, it's still, it's still the truth. Sent, so, sent to who? I mean, you're going to be sending it to the news, and they just need their soundbite. Right, they're not going to find that watch. necessarily compelling. Yeah, exactly. You need, they need advertising. And in order to get advertising, they need to scare you. Right. It's going to get better, guys. This number is going to go down. And here's the reason is not as compelling as this is terrible. Correct. Yeah. Exactly right. And so, so who knows what it is? I mean, as the Sierra survey stuff comes in, who knows? Um, I mean, I think New York City and I don't, so I, I keep calling it the city. I don't know if it was just the five boroughs. I think it was where they did the 20, 21% Sierra survey. Yes. To get grocery stores. Yes. You know, that was a New York statewide project, but they yeah. said city. So I assume it's the five boroughs. Nassau County, which is just outside yeah. of Queens where my practice is, it was 16, either 14 or 16%. So the city was, was 20. Absolute, and that makes absolute sense. And the Northern Jersey suburbs, I mean, all the bedroom communities around, around the city are going to be pretty hard hit, right? Yeah, all those commuters, they brought it out. They brought it out to us. Well, I mean, case two was that guy from New Rochelle. Yes. Remember? And that's when they called out the National Guard to New Rochelle. <laughs> yeah, well, and that it was a tightly knit Jewish community. It was indeed. Uh, with absolutely no ties whatsoever to either Iran, Italy, or China. And and that even that didn't cause you know, the people managing the epidemic to really question the dominant narrative at the time that this was still all for an importation. Yeah. You know, now now all of this has been worked out. So now the fact that there's been community transmission in the United States in the hotspots since mid-January, that is not controversial anymore. That is not fringe. That is gospel truth accepted by everybody. Um, and, I, you know, people just have, to, we're not really accustomed. We have such faith in our knowledge and information climate right now and in our scientific establishment that the idea that something might not be known and that something that the phenomenon is evolving. I think people are having a lot of difficulty coming to grasp grips with that. Well, I think that's where this conspiracy has come from. I think it comes from two places. One admitting that there's stuff that we just don't know and we can't explain. And two is it's complicated. I think those two comes together because a conspiracy, now you've filled in all of your unknowns and two, it's no longer complicated. Exactly right. I agree. Yeah. So one more question about the, the spread. One of our other physicians noticed, or they thought they noticed, might be, I guess it is by definition anecdotal, allergies and asthma protecting against uh, severe disease. And then my thought to that was that maybe it was the treatment of allergies or asthma could be protective against severe disease because some of the things that we're giving are interleukin inhibitors. And so then that could protect like Dupixent or Zolaire could maybe protect against the cytokine storm. Is there any thought that that I, might be? So obviously I'm not going to pretend to have a huge amount of clinical expertise here, but I think in general, all of the autoimmune and inflammatory conditions have been not particularly protective and not particularly a risk factor contrary to what a lot of people were expecting. Yeah. Um, even massively immunosuppressed people, people that are, are solid organ transplant recipients or people that are, have, are still in active uh, treatment you know, with chemotherapy, they haven't shown necessarily a, a, 
the skyrocketing mortality rate that people would have otherwise predicted. Right. Um, not, allergy not, it's asthma, not like a, you would think it would be like a nursing home. Right. Allergy has asthma, been. though, yeah. has, hasn't really had much attention paid to it, but I don't think there's been any data that shows it's protective nor any data that shows it's a risk. It's a risk, yeah, and, which is surprising. This it, is a respiratory it, it, illness, and yet it's not. It's a respiratory illness, and, and it's not terribly much a risk. And I think part of it is what you suggested, that people who are immunosuppressed via medications are possibly protected by those medications. And people with autoimmune disorders might have, you know, sort of hair trigger immune responses that could fight off the virus effectively and or could potentially snowball into a cytokine storm. It could sort of wash either way. Yeah. And so, you know, there's obviously the the rheumatologists and anyone who prescribes chemotherapy, everyone is quite interested in this. There's a lot of registries of patients. And as, as far as I know, there's not been a substantial effect in either direction, you know, and I'm not, I'm saying, you know, there's maybe people with uh, people on chemotherapy have like a 10% elevated risk of mortality, which is obviously not zero, but it's not. And I made that number up just. To yeah. Be yeah. Yeah. But not, but, it's not something it's astronomical. Not, it's not 300%. Like, right. It's yeah, not like the you age. It's not like the age number, which is no, not at all. Huge, no. huge factor. And you know, so some of the, so the problem too in the United States is that we have 50 States and we have even more jurisdictions that report data to the CDC. So our reporting is absolutely as uneven as you could ever imagine. It's a nightmare. People report in different categories. The age categories aren't even consistent. Um, what what people call a, a particular comorbid condition differs from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Some report race, some don't. You know, some some don't have any comorbidities that they report. So it's it's always very incomplete. So if anyone looks at the CDC data and tries to pull it out of MMWR, they'll they'll be frustrated and they'll be like, oh my goodness, why is why is there only like sixty percent of the jurisdictions reporting for this particular indicator? And that's why it's just federalism. Yeah. But some so some places do report immunosuppression as a risk factor. And New York City is one of those places. But no, but what does that mean? Yeah. How does are you it, defining you take, immunosuppression? Yeah. Does it mean you are a solid organ transplant recipient or does it mean you take Advair? You know? <laughs> so it's hard to tease out. So let's move on to testing. Um, testing first, let's talk about testing for active disease. Do you have any reason why some of the tests are so poor, right? Where there are so many reports of false negatives or you know, is it is it the mutations? Are we only detecting some strains? Is it just a flaw of the test itself? Because tests like this take years to develop, and you know, we were asked to develop them in weeks to days. No, the good news here is that PCR-based testing, diagnostic infection testing in the US is essentially perfect. So I know everyone's probably screaming at the screen again, but the truth is, if there is viral RNA in the specimen, the test will detect it. Mm. Our conventional PCR tests, they're excellent. Yeah. Now, that's analytic sensitivity. That's not clinical sensitivity. Right. It so might not if, be... So if the point accurate. of the test is, tell me if this patient has COVID, then yes, many patients will be missed because they don't harbor virus in their nasopharynx. And so an NP swab is going to come up negative. And you've got to get to the nasopharynx with an NP swab. And And having seen people swab and knowing where the nasopharynx is, it it, it gets missed. You're aiming for the skull. Stop aiming for the skull base. Stop aiming for the olfactory bulb and try to get to the nasopharynx. It's parallel to the floor. 
just for anybody listening, it's parallel to the floor. Just trying. But for also for anybody listening, they're starting. To, there's a lot of kits now for self-testing at, and point of care testing that are done for the anterior nares, oh, okay. and they're about 95% as effective as the NP swabs. Yeah. Okay. That's good. good, right? So that's gonna yeah. help. Yeah. But anyway, so the deeper into the respiratory tree that you go, you know, the the, the tracheal secretions, and then all the way down into BAL specimens, the higher percentage of patients will, will harbor virus there. So I tell people if it's at all possible, and of course it isn't in an outpatient setting at all, but if it's at all possible, try to sample deeper into the respiratory tree. Don't assume that the test just has an intrinsic 30% false negative rate because that's Mm. absolutely not true. Don't repeat it over and over again. Same site, same patient, same day. Because again, if there's viral RNA in the specimen, it will be detected. Now, there's a huge caveat to that which is, I'm talking about PCR tests, the conventional tests that take about three hours to do. If you're looking at rapid tests, the ones that try to fast forward and give you a result in 15 minutes or so, mm-hmm. those are less reliable. You've probably seen some press coverage about this over the weekend when several people in the White House tested positive. Yes. And so everybody on, in the West Wing gets tested every single day and they get tested with the rapid 15-minute test from Abbott. And Abbott, that test can detect only down to the level of about 20,000 viral copies per mil, whereas the conventional PCR test can go down to about 100 viral copies per mil. It misses a huge number of people that just don't have very high viral loads. And that's what happened in the White House. They were testing every day with that rapid test, and people kept coming up negative when, in fact, they were infected. And then finally, their infection got to the level that they had a high enough viral titer that they, they crossed the threshold for detection. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's been the case. I can tell you from all my friends in pathology who run laboratories, when they validated that platform against traditional PCR testing, it has not been at not a level. Water. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, you can't fast forward. I mean, that's the bottom line. If anybody ever did PCR or you at least you remember it from the MCAT, it takes a lot of cycles of enzymatic replication before so you get to the level someone- if you get someone who's negative from the nasopharyngeal swab, should you, I mean, maybe this will cause some droplets to enter the atmosphere and you don't really want it right near you, but like, you know, have them bring something up from, uh, from below. And <laughs> now, I mean, sputum testing too is really, you know how hard it is to give, have people give you a reliable sputum sample? Yeah, yeah. It's just spit Usually from their just throat. It's not, it's yeah, not the actually from yeah. the lungs. Yeah. No. So, I mean, you know, to go in any deeper really, it requires a procedure. Yeah. and sedation. So yes. it's not, not it's not an option for the outpatient. Not practical. No. no. But, you know, but people, I need. I want them to understand that because number one, I want them to have faith in the testing. I want them also to not keep doing the same thing over and over again. And if they have a very cl- strong clinical suspicion for COVID, then act like it's COVID. I mean, yeah. isolate, quarantine, every, everything. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.